There's people. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Sam and I, I mean, I think we're getting tired of looking at each other, weren't we, Sam? So we're especially grateful for all of you. Um, thanks for showing up today. And like uh, Brad just said, I believe this is the start of a slow rollout as we get people coming back. And thank you so much for those of you who are joining us at home. And happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> and we're rejoicing with you, moms. I hope that many of you woke up to some unique artwork perhaps this morning. Uh, there in your houses, maybe you received back, uh, breakfast in bed. And uh, we want to celebrate you in a, in a very special way. And know that we're rejoicing with you. At the same time, I want you to know that uh, if you're weeping today, we're weeping with you too. I know this can be a, a really tough day uh, for a lot, a lot of moms out there. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost your own mother recently. Maybe there's a distance between you and one of your kids. And perhaps you've not yet enjoyed motherhood. And I've got a real special place in my heart uh, for moms who are currently enduring infertility. So know that we are weeping with you too. But um, I hope this is a good day for you and happy Mother's Day. So I can remember one of the biggest mistakes that I made as a, we'll say, a younger husband. And unfortunately, I did this repeatedly until somebody said this was a really bad idea. It was, I thought, part of my job to try to explain to my wife why she shouldn't be feeling the way that she was feeling. It never worked. And often, since I've meditated on that, fortunately, we had a, a marriage counselor that said early on, you know, Chad, that's really not a good idea. It's not accomplishing what you think it's accomplishing. And I've had to think to myself, well, why did I do that? Why did I feel the need to try and talk my wife out of what she was feeling? And I think it comes down to something fairly simple. One, it just made me uncomfortable. But then also, it wasn't what I was feeling. And what I felt was different than what she was feeling. And I felt like I needed to justify why I felt the way I did. And part of doing that was trying to talk her out of why she was feeling that way. And as it turns out, that kind of self-justification is a relationship killer. In marriages, yes, but also as Jody introduced the topic of friendships as well. As a matter of fact, there was a book that was written by two sociologists called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. The title says a lot. And they talk about this problem of fixating on our own righteousness and what it does to relationships. And the book says this, the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other is doing wrong while justifying his or, own, his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. And there's other factors that can be relationship killers as well. Fear. A fear of rejection, uh, punishing our spouse by giving them the silent treatment or doing that to a friend, or feelings of shame that prevent us from getting in relationships altogether. All of those things can be relationship killers. But see, what we see 
is that when Christ came, he changed the way that not only we re- the, the way we relate to God, but also the way that we relate to each other. And we introduced this topic, it's been coming up all through the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus was this priest, and I went into some depth in it last week, it's going to be even more so today, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? And even more practically, what difference does that priesthood of Christ make in my relationship to God and my relationship to others? Because as it turns out, it's got a profound impact on all those things and creates a big shift in the way that we think. The passage I want to look at today is from Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I'll be reading from 11 through 19 here in the beginning. We'll be going all through that chapter Though this morning we'll look in the remainder of the the verses in that chapter as we go on. But if you would please stand with me for the reading of Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll start with verses 11 through 19. It's so nice. There's people standing. This is great. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You may be seated. We're again continuing our series uh, through the book of Hebrews. And throughout it, you'll hear me say this again and again, there's a strong theme of continuing in the faith. These were people who were going to be subject to a lot of persecution and pain and difficulty. And the author is seeking to solidify the faith of these people and what they're about to go through. And he's making these strong connections to this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. We hear about him in the book of Genesis, and, and, and we don't know anything about his parents, we don't know anything about his offspring, and there's just a few verses written about him, but yet he's so profoundly important when we're looking at this connection he has to Christ. So this morning, we'll continue building on those parallels between Christ and Melchizedek, things that were literally true of Melchizedek, his literary eternality were literally true of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to approach the topic this way. First, we'll look and see how Christ's priesthood changes our worldview. Then we'll see how it changes our relationship to God. Then we'll talk about how it changes our relationship to each other. So I want to start going through this passage now. I'll start by looking at this shift in thinking. And changing your worldview is never an easy thing to do. I almost said unfortunately. I guess fortunately I've been through this a few times, but it's not an easy thing to just change the way you look at the world because you've been exposed to more truth. 
But that's what we see happening. Uh, it's vital to the growth of both us and these Hebrews that they're having their worldview shifted by means of Christ's priesthood. As it turns out, Christ perfected the priesthood. So how did he do this? There were a lot of imperfections in the old priesthood. And we see that here in the verses we were looking at, starting at verse 11. It said, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Levitical just, Levitical just means that these priests came from the line of Levi. Levi was one of those first 12 uh, heads of the tribe and his lineage. Uh, they were called the tribe of Levi. They were Levitical. Uh, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Aaron was a grandson of Levi. That's why, and he had a legitimate priesthood under him. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So if perfection could have come through those priests, then why did we need another priest? And this new priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, was going to bring change to the law altogether. And as it, as it turns out, Christians are no longer under the law. That's such a key break to understand. The point of the law was to show us that we needed a Savior. No one kept that law perfectly. That was the point. God showed mankind that they could not keep the law. It was like what it says in the book of Galatians, a pedagogue. It was a babysitter until we received grown-up privileges when we started receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I love what one commentator says about this. This is F.F. F. Bruce. So by his own independent line of argument, the author of Hebrews reaches the same conclusion as Paul. The law was a temporary provision, our tutor to bring us unto Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's what the law was. It was this tutor, this babysitter. So the priests under the old law, they couldn't offer perfect sacrifices. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves, as a matter of fact, before they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So another priest came, not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And then in verses 15 through 19, um, we see there, there was a need for a better replacement. It says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises at the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus didn't become a priest in the legal sense. He came from outside of Levi, uh, the, the, the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Judah. It wasn't because he was genetically uh, predisposed to becoming a priest. He wasn't. He wasn't of that lineage. It was because he had this indestructible life. He died and was resurrected. And he continues to live. And then to quote one more commentator on this, speaking of the uh, the ability of Jesus to become a priest personally, not because of anything outside of him. It says, Christ's priesthood <clears throat> depends not on physical things, but on his character, his personality, his being, what he was in himself. Here was a revolution. It is no longer outward ceremonies and observances that make a priest. It is inward worth. 
Then the text goes on to say, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So we're seeing things happen because of the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ. What a privilege we have that we, we don't often get this. That we can simply pray and call out to God because of this personal relationship that we now have with God the Father that was only enabled and enacted because of the work of Jesus Christ. And because He is now serving as this priest that's constantly there in access to God, 24-7, 365, not at just certain periodic times during the year, during festivals and ceremonies. And we have this assurance that this intimate relationship is available for us to experience. This perfection required the Hebrews to change their worldview. What were they going to do with their time now? What did going to church look like now? That there wasn't all, going to be all these bloody sacrifices. How did this change the way they related to each other and to God? It changed everything. And it changes our worldview as well when we're connected to Jesus Christ, when we've trusted in Him. It's still true today. Uh, our thinking changes when we become sons and daughters of God. There's a great story that Tim Keller tells about a family member of his uh, who would never wear a seatbelt. They nagged him. They, they tried to tell him, look, this is for your own benefit, but he would never wear a seatbelt. But then all of a sudden, one day he got in the car and he put that seatbelt on just, just as soon as he got in. They're like, well, what changed? And he goes on to tell the story. He said, well, you know what? I went to visit my friend who was just in a really bad car wreck, went through the windshield, had to have... 200 stitches, and guess what? Now I'm wearing my seatbelt. It's interesting how when you're introduced to the truth in a real, tangible, perceptible kind of way, that has a real change in how you behave. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to speak about this introduction to truth, and he'd say basically over and over again, it's only when you attach to some truth that's when real life change occurs. Something has to become real to you way down on a heart level. And as Christians, as we understand the truth more and more, our hearts change more and more, God changes us more and more. And we realize this truth, and it changes our desires, it changes our motivations. It changes us down on the deepest level to where we're someone we've never been would never have been otherwise. So it changes us. This priesthood of Christ, this truth about who he is. And I want to look now at this, uh, this way it changes us um, and our relationship to God. Four ways it changes our relationship to God, this priesthood of Christ. And first of all, it's, we have this eternal relationship. Christ is eternal. He's never-ending. He's always there eternally in the presence of God. It's an eternal relationship that's never going to end. And then secondly, it's a secure relationship. It's a secure relationship. And then actually, if we looked at verses 20 through 22 of chapter 7, it speaks of this oath 
that God has made. It looks back to Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And why is that so significant? Because it means that Jesus is always going to be there. And the Father's promise is never going to change. He's taken this oath, it's secure. Then thirdly, we have a meaningful relationship. We have a meaningful relationship to God. Um, Notice what it says in chapter 7, verse 25. It says, so he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. God has expressed this commitment to meet our very deepest needs. As a matter of fact, only God can meet our very deepest needs. Our needs to be forgiven, to have purpose, to be loved, and then ultimately to redeem us forever at the very end to take us to heaven to be with Him. It's a meaningful relationship. And then finally, we have a maintained relationship. We have a maintained relationship. You know, relationships take work. They take communication. God is doing most of the maintaining in the relationship. Um, I, I like what Guthrie says about this. He says, God maintains his relationships with us by the work of his son as intercessor, a ministry he started in his incarnation and continues in his exaltation. That's from when he became a a human to now being exalted there, sitting at the right hand of God. God has gone and continues to go to great lengths to relate to us his love and words and actions. His aim has always been nothing less than a healthy relationship, and may we relate to him in a healthy manner this day. So we have this maintained relationship where God goes to great lengths. Christ is standing right there with God constantly forgiving us constantly loving us. Again, there is no particular ceremony or time of year when these things happen. It's perpetual. It's constant. God has permanently changed the priesthood through Christ. Finally, I want to look at how Christ's priesthood changes our relationships to each other. It changes not only the way we relate to God, but how we relate to each other. And uh, it's by the work of God that we are able to relate to each other in a healthy way. There's a great book, by the way. I've plugged it before. I'm going to plug it again. I'm continuing to go through two guys, uh, to go through this book with two guys here in our church. It's called The Search for Significance by Robert McGee. Robert McGee was a counselor, and, and the more people he met with, the more he realized they don't understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply impacts the way we relate to each other. And we keep falling back into traps. And there's some things that he outlines in that. And it's really helpful for our discussion this morning. And the first way it changes our relationships to each other is an understanding that we are totally accepted. And therefore, we don't need to fear rejection. We are totally accepted and we don't need to fear rejection. You know, rejection is an incredibly powerful force. And I guarantee you that everybody that's sitting in here this morning, everybody that's watching at home, you have felt this at some point. And the, more, and the closer the person is, the more painful the rejection. It's one thing to get on Facebook and see that your friends are talking about this party they had that you realize that you weren't invited to. But it's another thing when you realize that family members have gotten together and done something 
and you weren't invited to. As a matter of fact, some neurologists did a study of the feelings of rejection. And they looked at brain scans of someone who had undergone a severe injury like a broken leg, and they looked at brain scans of someone who had experienced rejection. The brain interprets those two things the exact same way. So it's intensely painful. But what is the antidote to this? Well, first, understand that the deepest rejection that anybody has ever experienced is what Christ experienced through the rejection of his father. His father rejected him when Jesus took on the sins of mankind. And Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Fortunately, it was just a temporary rejection. But see, he endured the greatest rejection of all time so that we could be totally accepted, totally and completely accepted. And now because he's your priest and mine in heaven, it demonstrates that Christ loves and cares for us so much that he represents us before his Father in heaven. See, we don't have to self-justify. Because we stand justified by the one to whom it really matters, to God himself. We've been justified. And we're treated like we have never sinned. So when we fully get this, we can enter into and initiate relationships without being afraid of being rejected. Because we are totally accepted. And the degree to which I believe you can enjoy relationships and enjoy a carefree relationship with people depends on the degree to which you can understand and accept that you are totally accepted by God. So that's the first one. And then secondly, uh, understand that we are deeply loved so we don't need to punish others. We're deeply loved and we don't need to punish others. See, there's a false belief that's really easy to adopt that those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. That if you don't live up to what you should, you should be punished and you're unworthy of receiving love from others. And there's a, a real danger to this. And there's a little excerpt from that book I'd mentioned earlier I want to share with you. Speaking of this, it says, rather than being objective and looking for a solid biblical solution or problems, we often resort either accusing someone else or berating ourselves. Sometimes we blame others to make ourselves feel better by blaming someone else who failed, we feel superior. In fact, the higher the position of the one who failed, a parent, boss, pastor, and so on, and the further they fall, the better we feel. The book gives the example of a woman who had a 15-year-old uh, daughter who'd gotten pregnant, and she couldn't sleep for weeks trying to figure out who needed to bear the blame. Her or her daughter. See, we can punish others in so many different ways. And I, I, this list, I thought, summed it up well. Um, condemnation of others may take the form of verbal abuse, physical abuse, nagging criticism, withholding appreciation and affection, or just ignoring somebody. But see, we have this priest. And in chapter 7, verse 27, it says he has no need to do every day what those priests do to offer sacrifices first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this in offering himself, listen to this, he offered himself once for all. You see, Jesus took the punishment, and this is why we don't have to blame and punish other people. He took the punishment so we don't have to punish others. So what's an alternative reaction? 
do we really understand how deeply loved and forgiven we are? Because when we do, we can accept God's forgiveness, we can accept His love for us, and we can avoid this need to punish other people. When you realize how when we realize how sinful and wretched we are and how much we've been forgiven of, it should make it so much easier to forgive other people. And then finally, we're made new. We're made new so there's no need to be ashamed. What does that mean? I think that shame <clears throat> is one of the devil's, I think it's one of his favorite tools. If he can get you so caught up in your past, and believe me, I've got, I'm haunted by whispers of things that I've done in the past, but he can render us useless with shame. And there's a false belief that can pop into our minds that I am what I am, I cannot change, I'm hopeless. And this is a false belief that can have extremely powerful effects. It could give you feelings of inferiority and insecurity to where you don't want to enter into relationships because you know that they would reject you. Or it can have another effect. Maybe you're the type of person that invites relationships with the dependent, the, uh, the alcoholic, because that helps you with a sense of shame that you may be carrying around. That's called a codependent relationship. And this is probably one of the biggest shifts in thinking for the Christian. Look again at what it says uh, in verses 18 and 19. On the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is what Jesus' priesthood does. It makes imperfect people perfect. Now, if you want to get in some game where maybe you did something worse in your past than, than somebody else did, <clears throat> you'll never win that game. You'll either judge yourself above or below somebody else. But if we can accept that we have been made perfect, that we are made new, that we don't have to feel ashamed. Now, we're not instantly perfect, but, uh, but it does set us in a Godward direction when we trust Christ. And by the way, we all have a past, again, we've all done things we're ashamed of. But if you can accept this newness, then you know that you need not be ashamed. That you can have this God-sized confidence, not because of anything you did, because He, who He says you are. So putting this all together, engage the world as a totally accepted, deeply loved, and unashamed child of God. You can engage the world this way. And I want to quickly close with a, a story of a woman in South Africa who truly got this. And if you can understand the tremendous power in relationships and just in life that's available to us through what Christ has done, uh, it, it's powerfully demonstrated by this woman in South Africa. Um, she was the victim of, a, of apartheid. And it created this horrible uh, class system where whites were in, in, in one class and and blacks were in another class. And some, some officers took her son and murdered him, shot him. And this is very graphic. But after they shot him, they burned him and had a party. Something even worse happened to her husband. And her, as her husband was being tortured to death, he screamed out, 
forgive them. And then finally, this woman had her day in court. And the man who was in charge of this torture, this officer, was sitting uh, in the place of defense. And this woman told her story. And this was eight years later. The man's name was Van de Bruck. He stood there before her awaiting judgment. She had her day in court. This was in front of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They asked her, what do you want? She said, I want three things. Calmly. One, I want Mr. Vandebroek to take me to the place where they tortured my husband. And I want to gather up his ashes and have a decent burial. Secondly, she said, I want Mr. Vandebroek, since he took all my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give, she said, twice a month I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And third, she said, I would like Mr. Vandenbroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him, too. I would like someone to lead me to where he is seated so I can embrace him and he can know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman, it says, was led across the courtroom, Mr. Vandenbroek fainted and people began singing Amazing Grace. This woman understood what it was to be reconciled to God and how that could reconcile her to others as well. I hope that we in some way can just capture a, a sliver, a, just a sliver of this to the degree to which she got it. Let's pray. Lord, you have a love that overwhelms us that we can scarcely begin to understand. God, help us to get it. Help us to understand this priesthood in a very deep way to where we get that, Lord Jesus, you are there right now, interceding for us, praying for us, counteracting the accusations that Satan is making against us. God, help us to love and forgive others, be reconciled to others. Forgive me of my own pettiness, God. Give us the strength to do that this week and the weeks to come. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.